0: Hey all welcome to the Ground Game Podcast. I'm your host, Bushido Squirrel, and today we're going to be talking about all of the scandals that LAPD is seemingly continuously involved in with two organizers from Stop LAPD Spying, a uh, longtime coalition here that has been keeping track of LA and all of their abuses. I have Hamid Khan and Jamie Garcia. How are you all doing today?
1: Good, good. Good. Thank Thank you you so so much. Thanks for the invite. Of course.
0: So let's start off uh, talking about the press conference that you all had today, because the LA Times had an article out uh, digging into Metro Division, which is a, a sort of elite division within LAPD, but they've been up to some fairly drastic racial profiling. So so let's kind of talk about the action that you all took today and what's going on with LAPD in general.
1: Sure. So uh, I can start off and just to kind of lay the, the all-around groundwork, and uh, Jamie can probably dig a little deeper, though. Um, um, so today's press conference was uh, was for, for several reasons. One was that the reporting in itself that the LA Times had done uh, uh, last week, and then it turned into this investigative piece over the weekend, uh, was uh, was very weak. It was quite disappointing. I mean, not surprised. LA Times has been pretty much uh, and or almost like embedded journalists. With uh, with the with the powers to be and particularly LAPD, uh, because one thing they they or several things they didn't do, amongst which was that they didn't dig deeper into the 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 practices, the programs, the tactics that lead to this kind of racial profiling. Mm-hmm. And when I say that, it's not just that racial profiling would be happenstance as a result of those tactics, and we'll talk about the tactics in, in, a, in a couple of minutes, but the uh, uh, Metro Division officers are instructed to engage, which would lead to behaviors and impact like that to begin with.
0: Just like in their, their regular
1: um, interactions with the public, they, they're regular told to interact. do that differently. Absolutely. Uh, so that's one thing. The second thing, where, what we wanted to also do, was to really expose the mayor because what what the the issue was that as soon as the story came out uh, on Monday, the mayor. Uh, had a press conference, and called for an audit, uh, which was really extremely hypocritical and a double speak, and typical of this mayor. He's, he's known as the backdoor mayor, the way he just takes off uh, as people go <laughs> and try to meet with him. Um, and, and because he is both structurally and institutionally responsible, and again, we'll go into details about that as well. So, so what we wanted to do was to, to set the record straight uh, to not let the mayor get away with this thing, like you know his aspirations to higher office, which apparently he announced today that he's not going to be running for the U.S. president. Mm-hmm. Um, but just this, this, this fraud—pretty much that—is being perpetrated on the on Angelinos as a result of this. But also this kind of policing that they're engaging in, and uh, maybe Jamie, if you want to.
2: Yeah, I think, um, well, I really feel like today and with the consecutive LA Times articles that have come out, a big piece of the story has really been missed. And, um, you know, of course, there was all the focus on Metro Police expanding. But when that happened in 2015 and LA Times actually came out with the article stating that Metro was going to be expanded, the line just below that statement um, in that L.A. Times article uh, in April, uh, it specifically, there's a, um, Chief Beck is cited stating, not only are we going to expand, but we're going to use predictive policing. Mm-hmm. And that was pretty much what the L.A. Times completely glossed over when it began to look at and investigate what was going on in the South Bureau or a known to community as South Central. Um, and I can get into that timeline right now if that feels like a good time to. You know what? Let, before we do that, let's let's
0: hop back and define some of our terms. So, uh, metro division. Who is that exactly within LAPD?
1: Metro is a part of the the, the larger Major Crimes Division. Uh, Metro is one of their uh, division that is that is assigned uh, special assignments, basically uh, SWAT, Metro, the the Strategic Weapons and Tactics Units, uh, the the Air uh, Support Division. So these are all all part of Major Crimes Division, which are specially trained. Um, for example, Garcetti's the mayor's uh, bodyguards and his security detail is Metro. As well, mm-hmm. so they're pretty much trained in military tactics. Um, so, in essence, what happens is that Metro and gang enforcement details. So, these are all sort of specialized units, if you will, uh, very much grounded in military-style tactics and urban guerrilla warfare and all. So that's that's. So Metro is a part of this larger kind of a. A uh, detail and, and division as well.
0: And Jamie, you mentioned specifically predictive policing. So what is that? I know it's connected a little bit to Palantir, and there was a really good article in The Intercept um, that you all were involved with that laid this out, but it's just for people that may not be familiar with it. What does uh, predictive policing entail?
2: Well, predictive policing uh, really entails, I mean, the ultimate components of it is data and that data being driven by either an algorithm or a risk assessment. And LAPD has two predictive policing programs that it currently is using. um, And the first one is PredPol, which uses crime data that uh, an algorithm basically uh, filters through and produces hotspots. The second one is called Operation Laser, which stands for LA Strategic Extraction and Restoration. And laser has many components to it. Um, it is a person-based predictive policing program, so essentially there are a list of people who have not are not currently doing anything, maybe have had a past, but that LAPD is instructed to basically stalk them, harass them, surveil them, pull them over, try to violate them. And these are these terms I'm using are actually terms that we're pulling from LAPD's own documentation. And in Instructions that they give their officers um, when they look for these people on the list. And it's also a place based predictive policing program. So, kind of like Gang Injunction, it sets up laser zones uh, for police to patrol. And then, on top of that, it also targets homes, businesses, and apartment complexes and different points, um, you know, intersections and different points in a community that it calls anchor points. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, so let's let's uh, go back to this timeline that you wanted to lay out with this current like scandal within Metro. Though it seems like this has been going on for a couple of years and nobody was really
2: paying attention. Yeah. So going back to when Garcetti in two thousand fifteen in April of two thousand fifteen, he states that he's going to expand Metro. Right after that, Chief Beck is cited stating that we're not we're going to also use data driven policing. We're going to use predictive policing to help guide this expansion. So. The, the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition was able to receive information about the laser program through a public records request we filed, which we essentially had to actually sue LAPD to get this documentation. But what we came to find out was that in 2015, Operation Laser, the person and place-based predictive policing program um, expands into the South Bureau, essentially 77, Southeast, Southwest Division, or known to the community as South Central. Um, So laser expands there. In 2016, Metro is trained in laser. So now Metro is officially trained in how to find people on a list which are called chronic offenders. Metro is trained how to um, patrol different hotspots and Metro is also trained in how to identify anchor points. So this is all part of the laser program. So during that same time, LAPD expands the laser program, but specifically in the South Bureau, again, 77th Southeast and Southwest Division. And it creates what's called a Community Safety Operations Center, which is essentially a command center where they track and trace people um, through the community, where they identify the hotspots. They use surveillance equipment like CCTVs, automatic license plate readers, and even field uh, interview stops um, to basically dis- uh, figure out who they're going to track and where they're going to send um, deploy officers into. So, the thing that's significant about this laser expansion and the creation of the Community Safety Operations Center is that it was specifically created to target South Central and so now um, or just a little a couple more years later in 2018 just last year in Garcetti's State of the City Address he is touting the success of predictive policing how effective it is and he's also touting the success of the Community Safety Operations Center and stating that he wants to expand it expanded and make one per bureau now, which we now know that there's one that exists in Central Station, uh, in Central Bureau, and there's um, the the Community Safety Operations Center for South Bureau is located at 77th Station. There's a third one uh, on the west side, but we don't know the location of that. So the irony of that is that Garcetti is now all of a sudden promoting himself as being alarmed that this racial profiling is happening, that Metro's over-policing a certain area, when he is specifically responsible for the use of predictive policing in that community. He is specifically responsible for Metro being trained um, in this laser program, and he knows of and has touting the success of the Community Safety Operations Center. And just as Hamid was stating— these programs tell officers to go and find certain people and to harass them. These um, pr- and they tell them to try to violate them. If you can arrest them, arrest them. And once people are arrested, they even have backups of chronic offenders that they can now put out and say, well, once one was captured or one was arrested, now we have another one to take this place that we can look for and track through the community. So it's effectively a um, program that has an intent to cause harm. There is no other you know, modus operandi that's going on. It's an intent to cause harm. So um, even in thinking about how Moore was speaking about it at today's police commission, um, how he was speaking about this, uh, these accusations of racial profiling or these very blatant acts of racial profiling, which we were talking about, you know, last year when we released our report, he, you know, basically just kept rambling on and on and on about impl- implicit bias training, about, you know, more effective training, how we don't even know if the stats are clear. And it's very clear to the community that this is happening. We really don't need charts and graphs. I mean, the stories from the communities, um, especially in South Central, will let you know that, they, um, that that community feels the burden of policing, feels the boot of policing, uh, and um, it's, it's nothing new, but it's definitely um, connected to this expansion of predictive policing.
0: It, it definitely sounds more intense, um, especially if somebody ends up on that list and it's almost like a quota system where as soon as somebody gets taken off the list, they move down to the next one. How does one find themselves uh, on this list? How does one find themselves targeted by LAPD in this way?
1: You can't because they, uh, there are ways, that although they do claim that they are sometimes instructed uh, to go and knock on doors and, and let folks know. So it's almost like a harassment process as well, but most of the time it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why we are in the middle of a lawsuit and we, we are demanding that the LAPD release uh, all these chronic offender bulletins. We've been able to get information on some of them. They, in fact, actually gave us one which was completely unredacted with the person's face and information and address and everything else so so we so this is one issue that LAPD is digging in and we we are going to end up going to trial on that one I just want to go back to one quick point um, that you were raising earlier that uh, you know nobody knew about it and this was going on Um, uh, to the contrary that the stop LAPD spying coalition going back to 2014 the end of 2014 uh, this is when the, the big drone issue was was hot and we were able to keep the drones grounded for three years. We actually had a meeting with Garcetti's staff. Uh, we had a meeting with his public safety staff, uh, Thalia Polykranis, I even remember their names, and Neeraj Bhatnagar. Um, and, and, and Eileen Decker, who is a police commissioner right now, used to be Garcetti's deputy mayor for, for Homeland Security and Public Safety. Mm-hmm. We laid out all of these programs to them, right? And we told them exactly what's going on because these programs are based on the presumption of guilt, And presumption of guilt is at the the core of these things. And then criminality gets assigned. So so fast forward... Last year, in May of 2018, the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition released a, a report before the bullet hits the body, and it's dismantling predictive policing in Los Angeles, where we very meticulously detail uh, everything that now they're talking about. We we go back, go to uh, research LAPD's own documentation, showed them that how black individuals are stopped five times more than white individuals. The, the arrest data, the parole data, the gang databases, and we showed them. Exactly exactly the disparities that are going on to the extent that in July of last year, there was a public hearing that was held in the city hall. And the coalition was invited, and this was the first ever public hearing in the country on data-driven evidence-based policing. So now, uh, uh, Michael Moore, the LAPD, the current LAPD chief that Jamie was alluding about, he's in the he's sitting right there. The police commission is sitting over there. It's in the middle of city hall. And in 22 minutes, we laid out, and it's, it's actually on, on our website. It's a YouTube of our presentation completely. So now, for them, to come back and Moore, Michael Moore saying the chief that, you know, well, gee, this is incomplete data. No, that's garbage. We gave you the complete data. The the, the mayor kind of making up all of this thing. So I think there's a lot of sort of uh, uh, political hate that is being made out of that. But, you know, I mean, the, the community's onto it. So that was one of the bigger reasons that we had that press conference to really expose all of these things.
0: Uh, and when we talk about kind of control of, of LAPD, especially uh, the civilian police commission uh, comes to mind, what kind of control did they have over the programs or are these something that happened completely within the command chain of LAPD
1: mm-hmm.
2: well what's what's odd about this is that we did when we started to raise concern about data-driven um, policing tactics uh, most of the Commission or pretty much all of them had no idea what the word data-driven evidence-based policing was. So they didn't even know the framework of the type of policing that's um, very popular and that most police throughout the nation are implementing now. So they didn't know the terminology. They didn't know about Palantir, which is a key component in the laser program. They didn't know about the records management system, which is insen- um, essentially houses all the data that gets operationalized by programs like PredPol and laser. Um, In fact, we have um, Shane Goldsmith on record telling us that she passed, I think it was a $400,000 grant to the records management system and telling us she had no idea what the records management system was. So that was very clear to us that they did not know what was going on. And it was because of the pressure of the community and us raising these issues um, at the police commission that we were able to move one commissioner to actually take action. And the the other piece is is that, as Hamid was talking about, during that uh, hearing in July of last year where we were presenting the case of data-driven policing, its impact on the community, the fact that we want it dismantled, they instructed the inspector general to audit Predpol and Operation Laser. So now you hear here you have the commission actually moving the inspector general to look into this because obviously there's grave concern from the community. These programs um, are 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 bad for us. So not more or la- at the end of last year in December of 2018, the money's come up um, as a donation from the Police Foundation to. Uh, create a community safety operation center on the west side. So at that time, we're thinking to ourselves, okay, they can't pass this money, even though secretly inside we know they will, um, but we're thinking they can't pass this money because they're in the middle of an audit of the program. So how could they actually pass this money to ex- keep expanding this program if we're in the middle of an audit of its impact? And, of course, we um, raise our concerns in the meeting. We're telling them, you know, don't pass this. You're in the middle of an audit. And Shane Goldsmith um, basically addresses the audience and says, we know that you will be nothing short. Sure, you'll, be, you'll be satisfied. You will not be satisfied for anything short of abolition. Um, she goes, but, you know, basically that's not going to happen here. I'm going to pass the money for CSOC, uh, but I just want to address, uh, address you and let you know we've heard your concerns. And so, I mean, it was essentially a slap in the face. Um, essentially, letting us know that this audit will do nothing for us because they have all intention to continue expanding this program. Um, but we intend to show up strong. Um, this audit's going to be coming out in March of this year. On the 12th, they'll release the audit. On the 26th, the commission will come back and actually speak or make action um, according to the inspector general's recommendation. But really, the community is going to um, show up strong. We're actually demanding to present to respond to the inspector general's audit, and we'll you know we won't be satisfied anything short of dismantling these programs.
1: And just to go back to you know, the question about the authority of the police commission. Mm-hmm. Uh, but before I go there, uh, Jamie referred to one of the commissioners, Shane Goldsmith, and I think it's really important for Angelinos to know who Shane Goldsmith is, mm-hmm. particularly people involved in progressive social justice movements. Shane Goldsmith is the president of Liberty Hill Foundation. Mm-hmm. Liberty Hill Foundation is supposedly the most progressive foundation that funds a whole lot of social justice groups. I-
0: I'm going to chime in just full disclosure. Power, who is our, our CDP partner, is funded by Liberty. Is a I grantee. just want to put that on the Absolutely. No, no.
1: Yeah. Power, I mean, various other, I mean, organizations yeah. that we are housed in, the Los Angeles Community Action Network and various other organizations, our partner organizations are funded. The point I'm trying to make that is that this is the double standard and the hypocrisy, that on one hand, Shane Goldsmith is the president of a foundation, which is talking about social justice, which is talking about human dignity, which is talking about, you know, our full, our full personhood. But on the flip side, here you are rubber stamping a body, which brings me to the issue of authority. So the Los Angeles Police Commission has been around since the 1920s it has complete authority over the LAPD it has to pass the budget it has to pass the the programs as well it even has full subpoena powers as well so they can subpoena but i mean as as it goes i mean they are pretty much a rubber stamping uh, uh, organization and we have never seen anything that has not passed through even to the extent that when the the most the, the recent round or uh, which of the in october 20, 2017 when the drone pilot program was finally approved, I mean, they 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 made this whole thing about doing community outreach. So out of 1,600 emails that they received, only 97 approved of the drones. So less than 7% of Angelinos who had responded, responded, they, 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 they even approved of the drone program. But even with that, they went ahead and approved. So they really don't represent the people. These are all political appointees. Mm-hmm. Shane Goldsmith, again, going back to Shane, Shane used to be a legislative deputy for Eric Garcetti when he was a council member. Uh, so there's a lot of sort of the, these internal close-knit uh, uh, relationships. And, you know, I mean, on the face of it, they are supposed to represent the best interests of the people, which they completely fail on all accounts.
2: Yeah, And then Soberoff was, um, during that time where they passed uh, to you know, go forward with the drone pilot program, Soberoff said, well, you may not trust the police, but I do. And Steve Sobroff is the president of the commission.
0: Yes. And uh, his son actually, ironically, has done a lot of good uh, journalistic work around uh, DHS's uh, camps along the border and illegal detention of migrants, um, which is weird that his father is one of the main drivers of the, the prison industrial complex. I wanted to talk real quick. So we've been talking about uh, Palantir and uh, some of the private companies that feed this. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that ecosystem and then drill down into what this technology looks like. Uh, when it comes to police getting like new technology, been Palantir getting drones is this because the police are asking private industry to create these capabilities or private industry is creating them and then seeing police as their main place to sell it or is it you know somewhere in between
2: I I would say it's somewhere in between because um, the private consultant agency that developed the program operation laser justice security and strategies they are in it to make money and they are working with and I mean We definitely need to call out the private sector, but it's really important that we call out academia, Mm -hmm. that we call out these private contractors, um, that we call out these relationships that are happening so you know we we were having a meeting just the other day um, you know members from the community with uh, Stop LAPD Spying Coalition and we started to kind of see this triangle where there's a lot of pseudo science that's going on and it's not just with the mathematicians the, or how the stems right the science technology engineering and mathematics but it's also starting to inc- incorporate the sociologists the psychiatrists the psychologists who seem to be people that are really um, in charge of creating a narrative of the other. You know, um, what we're finding is that they are, there's an actually algorithm that's been uh, developed by, you know, um, mathematicians, but is being fed by psychiatrists and uh, psychologists about what extremist behaviors look like. So you have your pseudo psychologist, you have your pseudo, you know, uh, psychiatrist, and I call it pseudo because they're really creating this kind of false narrative of the other, right? And so the the computer programmer or the mathematician or whoever creates these algorithms takes the variables or the components that these kind of academics this um, cre- um, identify and they program into this and they program the algorithm according to that, right? So now you have the, the marriage of, um, of science, um, these social sciences, and then you have these private contractors that come in and basically kind of make it all into a package deal. Then you have these uh, these other private contractors that help LAPD institutionalize it. So a big a big component of the story, and yes, um, you know, private contractors that create this technology. It's very important for us to call out Palantir. It's very important for us to look at how Microsoft is a part of this, how IBM is a part of this. But what's most important is how you know the local universities are doing this and this program that I'm talking about about um, how they're using algorithms now to identify violent extremists. Uh, is actually coming out of Colorado State University. So even our state institutions are getting involved in creating these programs and creating this technology for police departments. And that's one of the big targets that we're starting to turn to now, looking at UCLA and looking at USC, because PredPol was designed by Jeff Brantingham, an anthropology um, professor at UCLA.
0: Oh, wow. I didn't realize that.
2: I do know USC, for its part, I'm a a
0: Trojan is one of the largest recipients of DARPA money in the country. Uh, and that's kind of weird. Like I had roommates who would work on software to teach Marines how to translate to Iraqis and it wasn't super successful because Marines are trained to kill and so right. they don't want to be friendly. But uh, this does take me to my, my next point. What does this technology look like on the street? Like if I'm in one of these very over-policed neighborhoods that's targeted by laser, what does my daily experience look like as far as the police are concerned?
1: I mean, I think we have to look at it in the larger context of the architecture of surveillance. So because this technology's various programs, these technologies feed into each other. And we actually mapped out the LAPD's architecture of surveillance, which which identifies both the human and technology-based intelligence gathering, that how information – and so I think we also have to understand that this is about the information-sharing environment, that how information is gathered, how it's stored, how it's shared. Then the question becomes, what is being gathered and how is it being gathered? What has happened is over the last 25, 30 years that uh, there's a concept which started out of England. It's it's called intelligence-led policing. It was started by the the Kent Constabulary. And what it does is that in that behavior and behavioral surveillance uh, becomes a key factor. So, so what, what happens is as a result, which Jamie's talking about now with all the pseudo psychiatrists and the psychologists, in essence, all your movement is being tracked. So for example, license plate readers, if you're driving, uh, your car, you're being traced and tracked. Then you have the trap wire technology, which has these thermal imaging, kind of like uh, globe-looking bulbs. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, we have photos on our website as well, and folks can go on the www.stoplapdspying.org and look for the architecture surveillance. So if you're walking down the street, even at night, through night night thermal imaging, your body image is being picked up, mm-hmm. right? Then if you're hanging around in the park or something, then you have the 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 forward-looking infrared. Uh, uh, cameras and high-definition cameras installed on helicopters. So you have that going on as well. Then you have the body cameras that are now being used by law enforcement individuals, which is a tool for 24-hour uh, surveillance. Uh, then you have the Suspicious Activity Reporting Program, which is more human-based intelligence gathering, out of which I think uh, the folks uh, folks may know the most commonly known as See Something, Say Something. Oh, yeah, yeah. The yeah, yeah. iWatch program as well. Mm-hmm. So in essence, the, what we have is this infrastructure and this architecture of surveillance that Feeds into each other, and you probably won't never even know that what is going on. Then the closed circuit television, that, that there are business businesses and all that which give provide information to law enforcement agencies. So, so I think in essence, there's so much tracing and tracking and monitoring, um, that what the coalition has done is that we are now sort of taking it to the next level and mapping out the information sharing environment and calling it the stalker state, Then how we are being literally being stalked. And then how the public sector, the private sector, corporations, law enforcement agencies, international agencies. I mean, for example, Five Eyes, like our eyes on our on our face. So these are countries like the U.S., Canada, uh, U.K., Australia, and New Zealand that exchange information, then nine eyes, 13 eyes. So there's, there's, there's a huge sort of global uh, surveillance uh, industrial complex. And real quickly, going back to the earlier comment about the, 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 the corporate side of it, uh, I mean, I would even argue that it's even more towards the corporate side of driving these things than being in the middle. Because when we look at the history of policing itself, policing was formed as slave catchers. So in essence, their primary role was to protect profit-making. Right? where a human body was considered private property. So their, their goal, their, 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 their task was to recover runaway slaves. Their task was to contain and make sure that slaves don't run away. So that body, that property, was pretty much criminalized and controlled because it created profit. So over time, I mean, I'm reminded that when after Rodney King and the Christopher Commission was established, one of the first things that Christopher Commission came out was that LAPD should be run like a corporation. That was their first sort of thing that they came out. So when we think of the the police commission, those are the board of directors. So for us to even assume that they would think of the public interest would be naive at best, right? Because for them, it's the entity that they have to protect. The entity has to be fully funded. So now how that entity, the tools that it does to expand its operation to be the most impactful, that's where the corporations come in. I mean, there was a study even done by a, a U.S. Senator, uh, Tom Coburn. I mean, he's a conservative. He was retired now out of Oklahoma. Um, And the, the study is called Safety at Any Price. And this study was released Uh, in 2013 and it looked at a period from 2003 to 2012 just post 9-11 that how much money had been given you know by Department of Homeland Security so within that span and we're like seven years ago now close to about $40 billion had been invested for which is known through FEMA the Federal Emergency Management Agency for emergency preparedness and in that are these streams of money like the Urban Area Security Initiative which fund law enforcement agencies Directly. So in that, close to about $9 billion have gone without any record. And when you look at that report, um, you know, this is this is a huge boondoggle. So when we talk about the war on terror, and when we talk about the surveillance industrial complex, this is an unending piece completely. So now where policing is going, I think very much this is where the corporate piece comes in as well. Um, that now thought has been commodified. And we see that through social media. We see that through various other means that how profit is money is being made just because what we think and what our behavior is. All of a sudden, you know, there's all of these products, everything else comes in, right? So, So, and Facebook and Google and everybody else facilitates these things. So similarly, law enforcement agencies and the corporations see a huge profit making this thing. So behavioral surveillance becomes a key piece, suspicious activity. So even the chronic offender bulletins that Jamie was talking about, which are sent to the laser program are based on presumption of guilt because individuals and they're like most wanted posters where you're not wanted for anything, but you're called a person of interest that you may end up doing something wrong because you did something in the past. So so I think these are, these are not those complex things, but they are made to be complex. But when you unpack them, you're like, OK, there's a whole lot
2: of money making and targeting and criminalization going on. Uh, there, Yeah, so, I mean, I, I really appreciated the way you kind of outlined the architecture of surveillance, but what's really important that we understand is that the technology is moving police away from what they call a query-based system into an alert system. So part of what Palantir is also doing is that it's making something called Palantir Mobile, um, where it wants... Um, officers to be able to access Palantir's ability to search multiple databases at one time to bring together information, but it also wants to provide police officers with an alert, so that because officers are mostly in in their cars or even on their bodies, they have GPS tracking systems, because you have officers on the beat, you have officers on bikes, um, they have GPS tracking systems, so they want to be able to have officers actually go into communities and get alerts when a chronic offender may be in the neighborhood. And so at this point, we are still trying to figure out where they're at in this process. Through the grants we received through the public records request that we filed, we saw some information stating that they're piloting this program. But so the, the connection to the ar- architecture of surveillance is very important because with the use of automatic license plate readers, they can know if a certain car is in the neighborhood. With um, the way that they're analyzing um, communities, which is the other component of thinking about, you know, When Hamid talks about the Stalker State and the architecture of surveillance, their ability to map communities is going down to understanding what the race, the class, the age, and the income level of everybody is within a community. So um, we found this out through a document that we we received where they were actually analyzing um, high crime areas, and they were trying to find um, street segments that had similar crime rates. Um, So they analyzed 10,000 street segments. Of course, we're looking again in South Central um, because this is the area that they pilot and they test and they experiment on this community continuously. so they they you know looked at all these street segments and then they you know coupled up all the ones that had similar crime trends. You got down to the area that had the most crime. They compared it to um, to census data and they showed that it was areas where black women, uh, single head of household renters, who. Um, who were from the ages, I believe, of 27 to 32, lived in the areas with the most, or with the highest level of crime. So right there, now you're implicating an entire community um, as being associated to crime, um, and not only that. When we think about field interview cards, and this is another thing about how it shows up on the ground, that even your first interaction with a police officer where he stops you and wants to ask you information, maybe pull, maybe decides he wants to do a field interview card on you, which is now moving to be electronic because they want to be able to process these field interview cards f- very fast, um, they use those field interview cards to map communities in what they call social network analysis. So not only are they getting down to who you are demographically in a community, but they're also coming down to who are you talking to, um, who, do, who 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 you're talking to, who are they talking to, where does information and goods exchange um, within your community, and then from there, they pick who they want to track and trace more. So I think it's really important that we realize when people say don't talk to police, talking to police effectively gets you mapped, gets who's with you mapped, but um, and leads to, I mean, field interview cards are, are, ex- are extremely fascinating, extremely used now by LAPD yeah. because they are using field interview cards to um, m- uh, map gang areas. They're using uh, field interview cards, again, to map communications. Uh, They're using field interview cards and identifying chronic offenders. So again, how does it show up on the street? A chronic offender every time, um, well, not even a chronic offender, every time you get stopped by LAPD and they fill out that field interview card, you get a point. And so chronic offenders are identified based on a point system. So you get five points for being formally incarcerated if you're on parole or probation. You get five points if you have ever been arrested with a handgun. We are finding that um, the black community is arrested five, five times more than the white community. You get um, five points if you're identified as a gang member. And we already saw how um, plagued the Cal gang databases from the 2016 audit. Um, You get five points if you have a violent crime on your rap sheet, and that even using that terminology as a parameter, rap sheet, um, so all those things add up to points, and what we're finding is that people as young as 19 are on this list and as little as six points are being identified as chronic offenders, as people that are the most dangerous in the community. And granted, you could be stopped five times in one day, which you hear from youth living in South Central, living in over areas that just being in the neighborhood or their brother being a target of um, LAPD now are continually getting stopped. So just within five stops, there you are. There's your five points. Um, so this this is kind of how it's showing up on the ground. This is how the community is now interfacing so if you have that friend or you meet that person that says man LAPD shows up everywhere I go to school they're there I go to the you know the corner store and they're there that stocking is very real and LAPD is instructed to do that type of stocking
0: so a couple of really interesting questions I want to ask uh, one is going to be about the bias that goes into these interview cards because a st- uh, public defender who organizes with us uh, has talked about that. Uh, but before that, uh, you you both mentioned uh, body cams. And I find this to be a really interesting subject because, because for a lot of the public, they're sold as an accountability measure. You seem very skeptical of that and I see the inclusion of AI in this big data trend as also really dangerous. So I guess my two-part question is one how dangerous are body cams and two uh is there any expansion of police technology that's not necessarily oppressive?
1: I think it's of course we we can we can talk about technology all day long as well but 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 I think it's it's about policing more than anything else. So we have to really look at uh, before we get to the technology, we have to look at the institution itself. We have to look at the, the history of the institution. We have to look at the current realities of the institution. I mean, you know, um, here we are today, uh, January 29th, 2019, speaking about a, a report that mayor is demanding an audit because of heightened racial profiling. So I think it is when something, and that's why we, uh, we, we we build our work on the tradition of abolition. We are abolitionists. We don't seek reform. We don't engage in any. Advocacy work, or we're not looking at kinder, gentler policing. So I think it's it's uh, so even when people talk about, and this is something uh, there's there's this, this this almost this misperception uh, within our social justice movements as well, even within progressive communities too, that only if we had control of data ourselves, only if we were in control of our lives, there could be there is a possibility to build a bias-free algorithm. We can you know we can turn things well. Okay, but if the algorithm is designed for particular outcomes, because there is no one generic, one size fit all algorithm. It'll be an algorithm for policing work. So policing work inherently, if it is going to be biased, inherently if its purpose is to 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 really to contain, control, and criminalize certain subsets of populations, right? So then because then the argument, the counter-argument is where computers are race neutral. Technology is race neutral. What do we So I think before we even go there, we have to look at the, the, the institutions themselves cells. Um, and then not to give the technology a pass because then the algorithms by themselves would be flawed by design as well, because they're they're serving a particular purpose. So I think it's really important. So in that comes the body cameras. Um, I mean, in full disclosure, we have always rejected the use of body cameras. And it's interesting that even when the body camera debate had started, we released a report on body cameras. And at that time, we had clearly identified that this would be a tool for 24 hour surveillance. Um, just the the tool itself, it's an outward looking tool. It has a span of about 130 degrees, so it's not it's not focused on the law enforcement individuals. So everything that is happening behind the camera, the body boomers, the reaching for the gun, everything else is pretty much uh, you know not in the view of something. Then you know then how this is being used. It's a body camera that is capturing evidence and information 24 seven. It is right out there. All of this loads and loads of information is going on um, when the body cameras were were, were uh, introduced. Um, the former chief Beck said that all background uh, uh, footage is, can be used as evidence. So, so you have that. Then you add facial recognition technology into that to identifying people. Artificial intelligence is already being used by LAPD to process all the, the, the information that the body cameras are picking up as well. So in a sense, um, body cameras remain a tool, and you know, and and, and primarily, even when the police commission submitted a report to the city council, um, about out of the the 38 page report, there was only one or two paragraphs for monitoring police misconduct. Everything else was about reducing liability. Everything else was about reducing liability. So even to the extent that uh, one of the, uh, the police chiefs from Salt Lake City, I believe, said that body cameras are there to make police work look good. Because it's almost like a justification for, for, for lethal use of force. I mean, it, it, in a very perverse way, it gives uh, law enforcement agencies more of a cover than as a tool for police misconduct.
2: Yeah, um, any giving any more money to law enforcement never leads to anything um, positive for the community. Um, but I think one other thing, when we think about technology and the implications of technology, we always have to stay one step ahead of the game because they're already building on what they're capturing. right? So when you think about body cameras, um, Axon is who supplied the body cameras to LAPD. Well, Axon is running its own experiments on the footage that it gets from body cameras. Now, LAPD is claiming that they do not share their body cam footage with Axon, but we know for a fact that Axon is receiving body cam footage from police departments. So what it's doing, it's using artificial intelligence to basically go through the body cam footage to be able to learn how to predict behavior now so that the body camera can actually read what the be- mannerisms of people are and what is what does that mean they're going to possibly do. Is this person going to get violent? Is this person going to try to run away? Is this person going to try to draw a gun? So now we have this footage that's supposed to be keeping communities safe, is supposed to be keeping police accountable, is now being used to um, experiment even more on the community to try to predict what a person's going to do. And this is where we get, we increasingly see this presumption of guilt, this proactive policing, this predictive policing where, you know, um, I think you you are just basically guilty for walking anywhere now because you, you do anything, um, you, you know... It's just it's absolutely appalling to see that we have moved completely away from innocent until proven guilty, which, you know, never really ever was a standard for anybody. If you were a person of color, especially if you are a black individual has never been the case. But so that's the only thing I would add with body cameras is that the technology just keeps growing and growing on itself. Mm Now, we were talking about the uh, field interview
0: cards, and Ace had a, a tweet that went a little bit viral where he talked about a, a juvenile client of his who talked to LAPD and mentioned, hey, my you know cousin happens to be in this gang. He suddenly marked his gang affiliated, and that, that's on his permanent record, as it were. Uh, you would mentioned earlier that the tactics that the divisions like Metro are being taught are are necessary but not sufficient to explain this type of bias in their policing. So I was wondering, you know, kind of from a macro level, where is this bias growing out of? Is it just endemic to LAPD? Um, clearly, things like uh, implicit bias training, you don't think are sufficient to get officers to to rid themselves of this or um, make it you know, palatable or, or uh, neutral in any sense. So I was hoping you could touch a little bit on where that bias comes from, because LAPD Seems to get worse the more technology they get. Uh, so where would there be a point of articulation to begin fighting back against that or pushing back against that?
1: I can start off by saying that that uh, that these terms bias and implicit bias, and I uh, sometimes sort of like you know to do a double take myself and pause because I think what happens is that they still provide sort of this cover for racism. Mm. They That the, when we use this language of implicit bias and when we try to sort of like almost garnish it with these kind of words, I think um, uh, as a person of color myself, as an immigrant, as somebody whose name is Hamid Hussain Khan, somebody who's an immigrant from Pakistan, um, you know, I mean, I think and, and so and, and then looking at the history of anti-blackness looking at the deep level of racism that that this this society, this culture has been built on, the bodies of of black people, of of genocide, of indigenous communities. So I think more than implicit bias and these trainings, it starts from the premise of racism which is which dehumanizes people you are you are less than human you are considered a threat to the system so when i said earlier about subsets of populations like when populations are considered threat to the system so people so the police agencies are going to go looking for crime Police agencies are going to be going to for, so in in uh, so what happens is that on one hand you have this hotspot policing right, which means there's an oversaturation of policing going on. So it's not that you know that there's more crime because crime is everywhere. If we, if we think about it, we're in Hollywood, uh, we we go to to Beverly Hills. I mean, there are different types of crime. We, if we were look at the codification of crime, yeah, I mean, Bunker Hills right there, and LAPD never
2: investigates it's going on all the time. It's just a matter of where they policing always finds crime though. Exactly. Yeah. Predict- Always. policing never finds – the algorithm always produces crime. There's always a level of crime happening somewhere. It just depends on where they want to patrol. And, they're, and they create missions. And that's the fallacy about PredPol being so data-driven and scientific is that they act like the algorithm is telling them where to go, where – LAPD essentially creates missions. We have documentations where there's crime analysts that get the results and decide where they want to patrol and give officers maps. And then the officers themselves have discretion on where they're patrolling. So it's not all scientific and not all clear-cut. One thing I just wanted to add to what you were saying, Hamid, and one of the principles of the coalition is um, always understanding that throughout history there's always been a creation of the other. And the other has always been the legitimization for the implementation of new tactics, of technology, um, inherently what policing is. Um, And it's always been about containing, controlling, and criminalizing the unwanted. Um, From the beginning, it was the indigenous folks that were on this land. It was the African slaves that were brought. uh, And that narrative has always shifted and changed according to what policing or what um, police protect, which are property owners, needed at that time. So, I mean, I think that's why now you hear things like, and Hamid was referring to this, um, even to himself, you know, with his name, but now is the terrorist. Now is the violent extremist. And so what we're seeing now, even in policing, is that with even with youth, they're slowly starting to drop the language of the gang member, the gang database, the gang or um the gang uh, what i am forgetting the name of it, but the um, uh, injunctions the gang injunctions, and now we're moving towards chronic offender, the extremist, laser zones, hot spots. So it's like almost as we make gains, um and we know we're obviously exposing how flawed the gang the gang database is, how flawed uh, gang injunctions are. They are themselves now changing also, changing the narrative to garner the legitimization, the support of the communities around them that have this great dependency on law enforcement, either um, ignorantly or chosen to be that way, ignorantly.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, and I think if, if there was even a, an iota of truth in um, in in the notion of uh, you know training people out of implicit bias and and police indiv- uh, uh, officers you know can be can be trained out of that, I mean LAPD really reflects the the demographics of the city of Los Angeles. It has over fifty percent Latinx individuals who are uh, police officers. It has it reflects the black population of the city. it Reflects the white population of the city. It reflects the Asian population of the city. The point I'm trying to get to is that these institutions are very much rooted in white supremacy. They are rooted in the protection of white privilege, right? Um, So even if you are a person of color, it's the institutional prerogative that drives your functions within the institution itself. So you would see black officers beaten up and murdering black individuals. You would see Latinx individuals doing that. So I mean, I'm reminded uh, there's there somebody had written this book called the 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 uh, the white, black, and the blue cop. So it's really the blue, the color of the uniform, that really defines and the institutional prerogative. So if the institutional prerogatives are around protection of white supremacy and white-oriented, mm-hmm. you know, scale, economic scales and the economic system, then, of course, like, you know, so we can't – we're not robots. We can't be – there's no such thing as a delete button.
0: Yeah. And this leads me uh, into my last question as we wrap up here. Um, what are – Good or what would you suggest for people who want to resist this, people who want to try and turn the tide? Because obviously LAPD and our policing structure in general across this country are massive. Like LAPD is fifty-four percent of the general fund, nearly two billion dollars. And that's not even counting all the like donations that you talked about and earlier. Grants where, and federal monies yeah, and all millions, that. Yes. if not tens of millions, sure. of extra dollars just flowing. Tens into of millions. No, literally yeah. tens of millions. <laughs> yeah, and and uh, but so what what can people do in their own neighborhoods in their own lives? How can they start pushing back and pushing for more of an abolitionist outlook?
2: Okay, so you know, I think join the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition. <laughs> we do a lot of work remotely. Um, I think. How, how could they do that? Well, uh, you can email us at stoplapdspying at gmail.com You can also go to our website www.stoplapdspying.org So, um, get involved I think. Uh, I think it's really, it's really an Important for us to humanize what is happening because I think that we get so caught up in data and research and knowing the facts, knowing the details, but just know each other. Know your neighbor, know your friend and listen to people's stories of what is happening. Um, Allow yourself to hear them if you're not experiencing it yourself. And that's that's where the divide is. I mean, you speak to people that... um, from the people of color, people that are black, people that are brown. I mean, my, I'm a person of color as well. Um, I'm Mexican and my brother's own experience. And I think it's like I, I use this phrase, know your neighbor um Because the more you know your community, the more that you can resist, the more you can stop calling law enforcement, the more that you can resolve your conflicts on your own, the more you can actually see the impact. And I think sometimes we live in such a virtual world um, that we kind of numb ourselves to what is going on on the ground around us. yeah, I think that's, that's kind of like been the thing that I've been about lately is really kind of hearing each other um, and then, you know, ac- obviously actively getting involved, but, um, but really humanizing the, your life experience with law enforcement because I think that's where you start to see the impact and feel the impact.
1: Mm-hmm. One of the things we always speak about as, a, uh, as abolitionists is that, that, you know, there's no such thing as a delete button, so how do we then make police irrelevant in our lives? what would that disinvestment in police and reinvestment in our communities look like? What does healing look like? How do we deal with trauma? Um, so, so, in a, so what we did was also as a way of practice, uh, we started this, this, uh, this campaign called Embody Abolition. So we've been partnering with this group called Color Coded, um, which and and we've been we've been creating spaces where, you know, just speaking to each other, identifying that what are carceral technologies and what are abolitionist technologies and technology, not just as a as an electronic gadgetry, but even in a sense of like reclaiming the word Mm -hmm. and, and, and just as the conversation we are having. Like what would it really mean? What kind of impact can it have in our lives? So in a sense, I mean, one of the things we did was just closing out last year on December 20th, we had an action outside Central Station in, in Skid Row. Central Station is one of the largest LAPD stations out there. It was cold. We were there in our community. We are based out of Skid as well, right? So we, these were our, our community over there. We, we shared food, we broke bread, we marched, folks marched inside, demanded answers, forced the commander to come out to answer to the community. We lit up a fire right there outside of the police station. To the extent that LAPD called the fire department, the fire truck shows up and they looked at us and the, and the fire truck left. So we're like, okay, so that was a big FTP yeah. right there by the fire department to the law enforcement, to police agencies as well. So I think when we, when we talk about abolition, there is no one size fit all type abolition. I think the question is that uh, to Jamie's point, uh, that how do we envision community? How do we envision peace? How do we envision uh, harm reduction and elimination of harm in our lives? That's why uh, we are we don't believe in reform because you can't reform a system that's fundamentally flawed by design because it will continue to cause harm. So I think our uh, message to your listeners would be that wherever you are, whether you join the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition or you don't join, but in a sense, as we speak to each other, how do we, what is conflict resolution looking like? How do we resolve conflict? conflict. And, you know, sometimes little conflicts can escalate into something very big as well. So what sort of, how are we communicating with each other? And then what would that healing look like? Yeah. So so I think it's this is something and we would love to have people come and join the fight. And, you know, it's 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 a long term fight. Yeah. And it's a, it's one where uh, being able to just look at the world in a little bit different way
0: and like look at police differently. Look in surveillance technology. Uh, the movie Hypernormalization makes a good point of the, the surveillance technology of today is very boring. <clears throat> mm-hmm. It's very easy to miss. It just blends into the beige walls. Right. And you have to actively like look at that and point that out and figure out how that's affecting your lives in ways that you may not notice. So I want to thank you both for this very excellent conversation for coming in. And I look forward to more of the work that y'all are doing because this is incredibly groundbreaking and somewhat scary work. LA is on the bleeding edge of a lot of technology. So to know that y'all are tracking all of that is really, really good. Well, comforting. I
1: mean, one of the things we, uh, this is something that we coined this as well, is called power, not paranoia, yeah. because our goal is to really build power in the community and not paranoia. And that's why in order for us to fight this, and when we talk about, I'll share this information, we have to know our fight. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank thank you you very much. Much appreciated. Thank
2: you.